Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll have an introduction and then uh, just look at verses 1 through 3 as we begin our study tonight on the making of a leader. The making of a leader. Nehemiah will always be mostly remembered for the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. It was his greatest and most impressive project, which he undertook with great success. This venture in faith, this project, uncovered his or exposed his great leadership ability. And he's one of the greatest leaders in the Bible. He got men to do things that they hadn't done in generations. And he was able to keep them going even in the face of all the circumstances, all the strong opposition from the enemy, all the, the hindrances. And his administration as governor of Judah also showed his leadership skills. He was so efficient and unselfish that he wouldn't tax the people, which makes him a very unusual government leader. Better than his leadership skills was his godly character. Nehemiah was a man very devoted to God, which we see in, in the story by his quickness to go to prayer at any time. And because he was a godly man, he didn't tolerate evil. Nehemiah's life in Scripture covers a period of about 12 years or so. But they were fruitful years and they were successful years. And he left a permanent mark in history, the history of Israel, and of the word of God, which man has had his hand on for over 2,000 years. The story about Nehemiah recorded in Scripture starts out by focusing on the bad conditions in Israel for the Jews and for the, for, for the city of Jerusalem itself during his time. And this is a good place for the story to start in Jerusalem because it gives us the background for his great work, which the book Nehemiah is all about. The things that he heard about his people and about Jerusalem changed his whole life. And it started him on a great venture of faith, an amazing work of God. Nehemiah is the story of this great accomplishment. The story of Nehemiah starts out with him talking with fellow Jews. And they were telling him about the bad things that were going on in Israel for the Jews. And, and the bad condition that Jerusalem was in during his time. The walls and the gates in Jerusalem were in bad shape. They were in need of repair. And the information about the bad condition of the Jews in Jerusalem, it changed his whole life. It, it affected him in such a way that it changed his whole life. And it started him on a great and amazing work that would be recorded and talked about all down through the histories in the word of God, or I should say all down in the centuries, through the centuries, in the word of God as we're doing tonight. This should be a, a very striking lesson to all of us, one that really grabs our attention. It should make us think to not take for granted or question or get discouraged about the things or the events that happen in our lives. Events and things that, that may seem at the time to be so unimportant, so trivial, so senseless. And the reason we shouldn't look at them as trivial is because it's in God's plan. 
It's in God's plan, and that may be very important for us. Always keep your eyes on God. Always keep your eyes on His Word, and you'll recognize His blessed providential leading in even the most routine things in your life. That should encourage you. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, as we know, the people were going to choose to be we're going to choose Saul to be king. And God was going to, you know, go along with it. It wasn't God's, you know, choice, but the God, God let the people choose. So in 1 Samuel 9, we, it starts out with Saul's father, Kish. He's missing some of his donkeys. Now, donkeys in, that, in this day were very valuable property. And so Kish, that is Saul's father, sends his son Saul and a servant to go look for the donkeys. And the search led Saul through the hills of Ephraim. And he passed through areas close to where Samuel lived in Ramah. And he searches the hillside for three days. But he, couldn't, he didn't find the donkeys. So Saul, Saul starts to think, well, you know, it's been three days now since we left home. And my father is now probably more worried about us than the donkeys. So he says to his servant, let's go home. Now. This is where we need to now see the hand of God in what seemed like just an a, a, a inconvenient, routine, uh, just mundane thing to go look for donkeys. Just about the time they were getting ready to stop looking for the donkeys, Saul's servant suggests, hey, I have an idea. Why don't we go talk to Samuel, the seer? But it was a polite thing to do to take a present to him, but they didn't have one. Their bread was gone and they only had a little money. So they get to the city and at just the right time, now people say, oh, the second coincidence or the second stroke of good luck. They get to the city at just the right time because you see, it just so happened that when they got there, the women were coming to the well to draw water. What a coincidence, people would say. No, what a divine providence, the hand of God. So they asked the, woman, the women if they knew where they could find Samuel the seer. After talking with the women, they went to the city. And as they were coming up to the city, guess what? There was Samuel who happened to be coming out towards them. Samuel was going to eat and was to worship God at the high place. God had already prepared Samuel the day before for this meeting. This story shows us how God often works, notice, in ordinary and natural ways in our lives. That's why we miss it as being the work of God. We're looking for fireworks. We're looking for a loud thunder and and handwriting in the sky for it to be a thing of God. But think about it. What we would call a rather insignificant and ordinary incident is what brought Samuel and Saul together. And I'm sure when Saul's father asked Saul to go look for the donkey, Saul probably grumbled under his breath and complacent. Oh, man, I I don't want to go looking for those donkeys. Who knows where they could be? Some wild animal could have killed them by now. We'll never find them. What a pain in the neck this is going to be. What an inconvenience. But you see, it wasn't just about the donkeys. It was about God leading Saul to Samuel so he could anoint him to be the king of Israel. You see, God was just using the lost donkeys as the way he would bring Saul and Samuel together. And many times we get irritated and annoyed by those so-called inconveniences in our lives as if they were just a stroke of bad luck, bad timing, 
You know, we see, look at, we look at delays, we look at missed appointments, we look at long lines, and just, we look at those as, oh man, of all the, the rotten luck. But God could be doing something at that moment. Saul did not realize that God's hand was in the whole situation as they were looking for these donkeys. And God was working behind the scenes to lead him to Samuel so that he could be declared the man that God had chosen to be king over Israel. Now, people think if it isn't, like I said earlier, some kind of spectacular vision they have or, or, or they're not caught up in the spirit like Paul, you know, then it's not supernatural. It's not God. But understand, God leads us in very natural ways using what seems to be very natural in ordinary circumstances. But think about it like this. When God is involved, it is supernatural, regardless of how he's involved. No matter the means that he uses, it is supernatural because God's in it. Many times the Lord gives us an impression or he gives us a desire or he lays a burden on us or it's just a gut feeling. But you know what? We often write it off. We often ignore it because there wasn't a bright light. There weren't any fireworks. So we just cast it aside and we miss out on the Lord who wants to do something with us. David is another perfect example of this exact thing. Remember, David's father sends him to, uh, David's father Jesse sends him uh, to take a care package to his brothers on the front lines of the battle. And he says, you know, when you give him the care packages, you know, come back and tell me how your brothers are doing. David might have, might have thought, why do I have to go, Dad? But when he gets there and he sees what's going on, he ends up fighting Goliath and winning a great victory for Israel and the Lord himself. Again, what seemed to be an unimportant and unpleasant task led David to a challenging situation that brought glory to God and blessing to David. The Bible says that God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he has, listen, he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Acts 17, 26. God isn't just the sovereign ruler of the universe, but he's also the controller of the affairs and the destinies of men and nations. God determines their appointed times. God determines the rise and the fall of nations and empires. They're all in his hands. God also sets the boundaries of their habitation. He tells them where to stop and when to go. He places certain nations in specific geographical locations. We see that in Deuteronomy 32.8. And he determines the boundaries of their conquests. The psalmist says in Psalm 37.23, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his ways. All of this being true, then why complain about your lot in life? All of this being true, why do we complain where we are in our life? If God orders the steps that we should take. If God is involved in everything that I do, why should I complain? So a man whose life is committed to God is a man who's being led by God even in the everyday, ordinary, routine, boring things in life. But look for God in everything. The Lord's gracious hand is there and he's guiding him. Never take anything you do as routine or boring, but look for God's hand in it. Listen for God's voice and expect great things to happen. Because the Lord's gracious hand is there. Now, have you ever heard this before? What our church needs is, and you can fill in the blank. I can't believe our government officials. 
If I was in charge, I would fill in the blank. Somebody ought to do something. Gripers, complainers, self-proclaimed know-it-alls, the armchair quarterbacks, they are abundant. It's easy to sit on the sidelines and analyze and scrutinize and talk about all the problems everywhere. The parallel, I should say, the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus taught is a rebuke to those who nonchalantly fold their arms and do nothing. Who nonchalantly fold their arms and do nothing. What we really need are people who won't just talk or gripe and complain about a situation or a problem, but they will get involved and do something. Nehemiah was one of those people. Nehemiah saw a problem. And he didn't say, oh, man, I, I sure hope it gets better for them. Man, I sure hope God sends somebody to take care of them. He saw a problem and it bothered him to the point that he got involved. He didn't, he didn't complain. He didn't say, oh, why doesn't somebody do something? He stepped up and he took action. Because Nehemiah knew that God wanted him to stir up the Jews to rebuild the walls. So Nehemiah left a responsible position in the Persian government to do what God wanted him to do. Nehemiah knew that God could use his talents to get the job done. And from the moment that Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, everybody knew who was in charge. Nehemiah organized, he managed, he supervised, he encouraged, he met with opposition, he dealt with unfairness, but he kept on going until the walls were built. Nehemiah was a man of action and re rebuilding those walls became Nehemiah's burden. Today, there's a big need for leaders. All you have to do is look at politics today. Those are leaders. It, it's sad to see that that's, that's what we have in government, and that's what we have you know, who want to be leaders. We need them in business. We need them in the church. A lot of leaders that we thought were leaders have let us down. So where do we find good leaders? I mean, you can go to your favorite bookstore and you can find all kinds of books on leadership. You can go to seminars on leadership. But Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah is the first book ever written on leadership that's really of any real value. A lot of men we read about in the Bible were leaders. But we often think of the Bible as a book that deals with only the everyday man, the common man, the lowly man, the disadvantaged man which it does. But a lot of these simple or underprivileged people became leaders in spite of their lowly status in life because God was involved. Like Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, they were leaders. And so are the New Testament apostles. And, the, and, and a lot of the Bible gives us examples about these exceptional people. And Nehemiah is one of them. Now, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. That was an important position in his day. The reason being because, you see, he had, he had constant access to the king. And because he had constant, constant access to the king, he had to be a man that you could trust. He had to be a man of the highest character and reputation. His job, uh, his position was equal to a chief of staff or a cabinet minister. 
And a lot of people in his position might have been just, you know, might have been just content to, to rest on their great success and to retire to the good life. But not Nehemiah. Nehemiah showed his greatness as a leader right here at this critical point. And even though Nehemiah was a man of great influence in the Persian court, he left his attractive position to lead a project to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, even though all odds were against him. And even though others had been trying to rebuild the walls for almost 100 years, Nehemiah accomplished this great task in only 52 days. He led a series of religious and moral changes that would greatly influence the the Jewish nation up to the time of Jesus. When Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king, his heart, Nehemiah's heart was deeply stirred up by the Israelites' problems in Jerusalem and the condition that was going on in their city. And And with the king's permission, he took off. He left his job to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, he ran into a lot of obstacles, but he wouldn't let those things sidetrack him from the job. From all of this, from his example, we can learn the importance of, number one, being in the center of God's will. When Nehemiah called on God about his brothers in Jerusalem and the the terrible condition of the city, the Lord showed Nehemiah, Exactly what needed to be done. God also caused the king to be kind toward Nehemiah and helpful toward Nehemiah. And, and, and when Nehemiah, the, and, and he, gave him, he gave Nehemiah everything he needed to get the job done. Knowing that we're in God's will, knowing that, that we are where God wants us to be will give us confidence to just plow right through the trials when getting sidetracked. Why? Because this is where God wants me. And if this is where God wants me, he's going to get me where I need to go. The second thing that we can learn from all of this, from, from Nehemiah's example, is remembering what the goal is. What am I here for? What is, God, what is it God wants me to do? Nehemiah knew that the Lord's priority for him was to rebuild the city. God has planned things for you and me to do in his kingdom and his work is always of great value and we're not to take lightly our part in God's work in the kingdom of God no matter how unworthy or unqualified we might be or think we are or how small the job seems to us we are important to the kingdom work the third thing that we can learn from Nehemiah's example is to complete every task that God gives us After every crisis that Nehemiah experienced, he returned to the job that needed to be done. By remembering the Lord's goal, we will stay where God puts us and we will carry out every step and we won't go off course. The fourth thing, important thing we can learn from Nehemiah's example is accurately identifying our distractions. Those who who try to stop our work, those who try to sidetrack us and get us off, you know, off the, the path, those who attack us personally, they're not from God. But with God's help, Nehemiah recognized who to listen to and who to ignore. And that's what we need to do. Usually, distractions start outside of ourselves. 
And we need to ask ourselves, who or what is it that usually distracts us? Now let's look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. And here's why. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. The time that Nehemiah asked about his fellow Jews was Chislev. That's December. The 20th year refers to the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign over Persia. King Artaxerxes ruled 40 years over Persia, starting about 465 B.C., which would date the book of Nehemiah at about 445 B.C. Now, the Jews who had gone back to Jerusalem, they faced a lot of problems from their enemies outside and corruption inside until Israel, at the time of of the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, were very bad for the Jews and for Jerusalem, the the city that they loved so much. God also, uh, uh, again, again, it was the city that, that God loved so much. So this sets the stage now for Nehemiah, for his great work for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and bringing about some really important improvements about, or I should say, among the Jews. This conversation that Nehemiah had with his brothers, took place in the palace in Shushan, which was the capital of Persia. Nehemiah asked about the conditions in Judah and in Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah, like I said earlier, was the king's cupbearer. And for him to get this job tells us some, some very good things about Nehemiah's character. It tells us that he had some very good qualities. And good character was a very important qualification for this particular position. The cupbearer was a very important job that served wine to the king. Nehemiah's job as a cupbearer was to taste the wine before giving it to the king to see if it had been poisoned. I wonder how many applications they had for that job. Doesn't sound very, you know, promising. But he had to taste the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So this person had to be very trustworthy. So... The job was one that had a great responsibility, required a great responsibility and a lot of trust. So you see, his high character helped him to get this high position. Now, Nehemiah, he was just an average man, just an average citizen. But you see, he would have never gotten this high position if he had been a careless, lazy, irresponsible person. Now, there's a lesson here as well. Good opportunities come to those who like Nehemiah, make sure they live a respectable and honorable life. You see, the professing Christian who is sloppy in appearance, messy, unreliable, just overall irresponsible kind of a person, shames the testimony of Jesus Christ and the name Christian. But he also limits his chances for good jobs with men and useful service to God. Nehemiah's good character not only gave him the chance to get a good job in man's eyes, 
But as we'll see later, it also helped him to, have the, to get the great opportunity to go to Jerusalem to do a great work for God in building the walls of Jerusalem and bringing about a lot of needed improvements among God's people. People who complain about the lack of opportunity and unfairness in life, they need to take a serious look at themselves in the mirror and then look at their character and their lifestyle. Now, good character doesn't seem to be important anymore in our day. But never ignore the opportunities that good character and lifestyle, good lifestyle can bring to your life. God will see to it that a decent life will experience his blessings. Now, Hanani and other men from Judah told Nehemiah about the poor condition of the people in Jerusalem in verse 2. They told Nehemiah, they reported to him that things were pretty bad there. Nehemiah asked them, so how are things going in Jerusalem? And he asked them for a couple of reasons. First of all, he asked particularly because he wanted to know about those Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and had returned to Israel to live. And he wanted to know about Jerusalem, which was the, the religious government center of Israel. Why is he concerned? Because the Jews in Jerusalem represent and symbolize the work of God. Nehemiah's concern for the Jews in Jerusalem showed that he was very concerned about the work of God, as all of us should be. All of us should be deeply concerned for the things of God. Because we know that the world has very little concern for the things of God. Unfortunately, so do a lot of professing Christians who show little proof that they're interested in the things of God. They don't read their Bibles or pray regularly, support the church financially. They don't attend churches regularly. They don't, you know, attend the prayer meetings. They have no interest in missions or other ways to proclaim the gospel. They do just enough to feel good. As Paul said, because many are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. You know, the, uh, today people are so caught up in pursuing the things of the flesh. You know, like, like, like Jesus said in the gospel, he says that, that the cares of this world choke the word of God out of their lives. It drowns out, drowns out that still, small voice in their heart. They can't hear it. They're so, so preoccupied by the things. Of, they can't see the hand of God in front of them. They can't hear the voice of God. They can't sense His presence. Because they're so preoccupied with the things of this life. And you know, a lot of them, in and of themselves, they're not wrong. They're not bad. But we're so inundated and preoccupied with those things. God has, got, God has, been, has been put in the back seat. He's not even the, 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 you know, the uh, co-pilot. He's in the back seat now. When he should be the pilot. He should be guiding things. But we're so caught up in pursuing the things of the flesh that... that Again, we either have no concern for the work of God and the things of God, or we just, we just can't hear, hear them or, or see them. 
But Nehemiah is a different breed. Even though Nehemiah had a high position in the world and he lived in comfortable conditions, Nehemiah was very concerned about the things of God. And even though this took place over 2,400 years ago, the subject of the Jews in Jerusalem is just as applicable today as it was the day that Nehemiah asked about the people and the city. Why? Because there's no race of people and there's no city that's more important than the problems today and also to our future. Because the Jews are the people with the greatest future of any people in the world. And Jerusalem has the greatest future than any city in the world. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus one day is going to come to earth to be Israel's king and to rule and to reign from Jerusalem. Men today are asking a lot of questions about people and places that seem to be very important in their eyes. But those questions have very little importance compared to the Jews and Jerusalem. Always keep your eyes on the Jews and Jerusalem if you want to know what God is doing when it comes to the future of the world. So Hanani and the other men from Judah told Nehemiah, and things are not good in Judah, Nehemiah. They're in big trouble and disgrace down there. And the walls, they've been torn down and the gates burned with fire. And as a result, they are suffering a lot of disgrace. We see the conditions mentioned there, and we can relate them to sin. Those conditions were related to sin. Because hundreds of years earlier, Israel was a mighty nation with millions of people in their land. But now they've been reduced to a remnant, they've been reduced in size thus reduced in strength, which added to their disgrace because they were once a great people. They were once great in number, but now they're embarrassingly small. And the cause for their demise was sin because Israel had turned from their God for many, year, from, uh, for many years earlier in their history and God warned them through Moses Listen to what he said in Deuteronomy 28, 62. You shall be left, notice, you shall, he, he told them, he warned them. You shall be left, few in number, whereas you are as the stars of the heaven in multitude, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. God knows how to make us small. Sin makes you small. Sin weakens you. It takes away your strength. And unless you turn from your sin, it will ultimately reduce you to nothing. It will drain you as well of all of your strength. Another sign of their bad condition was their standing in the world as a nation. In our text, they were called a province. But they're no longer a great independent nation. They're just one of many provinces that were in, 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 in Persia. This was a huge and humiliating disgrace for Israel. It's a great disgrace to any nation to become so reduced in standing that you're only a small part of another nation. Solomon said in Proverbs 30, 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. 
Another sign of Israel's bad condition is ridicule. They were being ridiculed. The Jews were under great reproach from their enemy. Not only were they reduced in size, but the ridicule from the people was also a reproach. And it was a great reproach. It wasn't some trivial feeling that they had. The Jews were really looked down on. They were truly mistreated. They were suppressed and they were often opposed as. Opposed, uh, uh, you know, they were often, people came against them, as we'll see. Nehemiah would also be ridiculed even though he was governor. And that, even though he served as the king's cupbearer while he was in Israel. But you see, God's people are often ridiculed by the world, and especially if they were walking right on with God. Hey, if Jesus got ridiculed, what do you think is going to happen to God's people if they're walking like Jesus? If the world likes you, I'd caution you to take inventory. Like Paul said, examine yourselves whether you're not in the faith. A person who dedicates himself to the living God for living for God and serving God and honoring God, they are going to experience a lot of ridicule in this world just like Nehemiah did in his day. Those who encourage God's rule and worship, like the remnant of Israel was trying to do, and as, as, as Nehemiah would do later, will always be subjected to a lot of ridicule from the ungodly world. But here's the thing. It's better to experience the ridicule of the world than the ridicule of God. Because, you see, the world's ridicule can't hurt us as much as God's can. Another aspect of their bad condition was the people's sadness. They were saddened over all of this. They were in great distress, it says here. It speaks of the Jews' feelings about all the bad conditions in Israel. The word distress here, it speaks about their feelings. And the Hebrew, Hebrew word translated distress is translated sad here uh, or in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. They were sad. And the next thing we'll see is that the walls of their much-loved city of Jerusalem lie in total ruin. So all of these things combined were definitely discouraging and shameful. And it's easy to understand why they were so down, why they were so dejected. And Nehemiah will also be very sad after he hears about these bad conditions when we get to verse 4. The condition of the Jews, the wall of Jerusalem, it's broken down. The gates are burned with fire, verse 3 says. This was the very thing that weighed heavy on Nehemiah's heart. This is the very thing that became a heavy burden to him. So much so, he told the Jews in chapter 2, verse 17, he said, come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. There's two things about this shameful condition of no walls in Jerusalem. First of all, the first condition was it was a dangerous condition. Because you see, walls around a city in those days were very important protection to the city. And these walls that were built around the city, they were huge and they were massive structures. They had heavy and strong gates every, at regular interval along the walls for access into the city. They were opened usually during the day and they were usually closed at night. 
But the walls were broken down. They were destroyed by the Babylonians when they defeated Jerusalem, leaving them unprotected. The group that returned to Jerusalem after their captivity, they were in great danger while they were living in that city without that protection from the enemy. And those, those were the cities, those were the places that the, that the desert thieves and marauders would look for. They would look for a city that didn't have any walls. Why? They were easy target. They were unprotected. The enemy could easily go into that city at any time, night or day. They could wreak havoc on the people and on any building that they wanted. So you see, not having walls was a very serious problem. And it became Nehemiah's pet project to fix this problem by rebuilding the walls. Now, the illustration of being without walls is also used for a person who does not or has no control over his passions, over his temper. Solomon said in Proverbs 25, 28, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Because you see, a person who cannot or does not control his passions is easy prey to the enemy, Satan. And he knows what buttons to push. He knows how to ruffle your feathers. Anybody can, can irritate that person. Anybody can torment that person. And they can ta- attack his uncontrolled passions. We need, through the rock-solid foundation of the Word of God, prayer, prayer, worship and strong convictions to build great strong spiritual and moral walls around our lives to keep our passions under control but building this kind of wall like building the walls of jerusalem in nehemiah's day even though greatly opposed is greatly needed today why because it seems the world is bent on destroying the walls that would keep our passions under control they're trying to get to us For example, the popular worldly saying is, if it feels good, do it. Go for it. It's a philosophy without moral walls that will destroy our character and it will destroy it fast. The second thing, the second shameful thing of the the condition in Jerusalem is it was a long drawn out condition. The walls were down for years. Destroyed by the Babylonian army about 586 B.C. It's now around 150 years later and the walls still haven't been repaired and restored. Now, there was an attempt to rebuild the walls uh, before Nehemiah. We just studied that in Ezra. Remember, but it was stopped because of a letter of complaint to King Artaxerxes. But the opposition of the enemy wasn't the only reason for the long time without walls. The people's lack of dedication was also a big problem. There was a lot of opposition from the world at times. But it was always Israel's major problem in God's work, the lack of dedication. And one of the things that really discourages us and make us quit is when we get opposed by people. Ridicule or oppose or they come against us. The thing that was usually there, the people's biggest problem was their lack of dedication. Nehemiah's success in rebuilding the walls will emphasize the fact of their lack of dedication. Because you see, when the dedication became great, 
the way it did under his leadership, the repairing of the walls was done quickly. Only 52 days. In closing, people often use opposition as an excuse for not doing much for God. But even though opposition does hinder sometimes, the real problem is usually their lack of dedication, fortitude, commitment, tenacity. We need to commit ourselves unconditionally to doing God's work, to doing God's service. And if we do, we won't be without accomplishments for God's glory, no matter how much we're opposed. Nehemiah's life is proof of that as we go through his book. Father, we come before you and thank you so much for this great book, God. Lord, may it stir us up. God, may it, may it cause us to not allow the enemy, God, to discourage us, to distress us, to sadden us, Lord, to hinder us from the work of God, from prayer, from reading, from studying, God from meeting with the brethren in church. A united church is a powerful church, God. But we have one purpose, one heart, one goal, and that is to finish the race, to finish the work that you've given us, God. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you think it's... it's it's too hard. It's too hard to live the Christian life. It's too hard to give up the things of this life, the things of this world. Well, on your own, it is. It definitely is. You can't do it under your own strength, your own wisdom. You need the power of God. You need that supernatural power, that dunamis power that you receive when Christ comes into you in the person of the Holy Spirit. He enables you to do all things, as Paul said, all things that seem impossible to man, but they're possible with God. The worship team's going to lead us in a time of worship, and if you're here tonight, and you don't know Christ as your Lord and your Savior, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. <coughs> you make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we can pray together a simple prayer of faith. Mm-hmm.